Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. This week we will be looking at issue number 495, May 21st, 1994, £1.40. I realised that this is episode 20 of the podcast. 20 podcasts. I honestly can't believe I've got this far and I can't believe people are still listening. I mean I can because obviously the content in the Kerrangs is great, it's not my it's not my delivery, it's all about the content. But this this whole um, podcast was basically started as a as a, just a as a project to get me through the pandemic. Um, you know, just something to do, something to sort of keep me busy, keep my head occupied. Um, and it's definitely something that I'm really, really still enjoying. And I think as long as I'm enjoying doing it, as long as I'm getting good feedback from people, then it's completely worth doing. I think you know, it's good for me. It's good for me for finding new bands. Um, I don't know what it's good for for you, the listener, but I hope you're all getting something from it. And speaking of listener feedback, I got a voicemail through the Anchor. Um, well, I use Anchor to, to record this, not to record this podcast, to distribute this podcast, um, which is actually really decent. And I got a voicemail from a lovely chap called Adam Cox. Now, when this voicemail came through, my initial thinking with this was, here we go. It's Kerrang. They're going to tell me to cease and desist, stop reading that old Kerrangs because of copyright laws. I don't know. Anyway, Adam sent me a lovely voicemail and basically just said that he's really enjoying the podcast, that he um, had also collects Kerrangs and had them all from about 1994 to 1998. Um, so there's a fellow fellow, fellow Kerrang uh, reader out there who <laughs> obviously didn't, didn't throw all of his Kerrangs away. I mean, my dad on multiple occasions urged me to throw all these Kerrangs away because they were sitting in his garage. But I resisted and thank God I did. Also, um, I had another chat regarding um, what I said last week about framing framing posters. So I was chatting to a, a guy called A Boy Named Stu on um, Twitter and he sent me a lovely picture of a therapy poster that he's had framed and put up, which obviously is great. Moving on to this week's issue. No, not moving into this week's issue yet. First, I'll start off telling you how you can get in contact with us here if you do want to get in contact with us. So, we can be found on Kerrang. We can be found on Kerrang. Oh, I'll tell you what, it has been a long week. It's been a really incredibly long week. I had a mental health first aid course on Tuesday uh, through my work, which was an entire day thing. And honestly, it was it was brilliant. I've, I've, I've done the course before and I'm really glad that I actually had a chance to do it again because we did it with, with more uh, members of staff at my work. But... It was exhausting. Really, like, just really, like, knocked me out for like a day or so. Just so much to take on. Anyway, if you would like to get in contact with us here, you can get us through Instagram at Kerrang Back Issues. You can contact us on Twitter at KerrangPod. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can email us at KerrangBackIssues at gmail.com. And also, if you want to send us a voicemail through the Anchor app, which I didn't even know you could do, like our friend Adam, then you can also do that too. This week's Kerrang! Cover stars for this week are Megadeth, world exclusive Megadeth back in the studio. Also, Little Angel Split, <gasps> Ratman joins White Snake, Skid Row, Sebastian back on Kurt Cobain, Sensor, Rap Metal Revolution, and the Guns N' Roses Killer 8 page pullout. There's also a free Metal Collector 32 page supplement, but I'm not going to have a chance to read you anything from that. Starting this week with Mayhem, the hottest news in Metal First, and Little Angels have split up. 
Little Angels have announced that they are to split. The Yorkshire Quintet will go their separate ways after their London Royal Albert Hall concert on July the 2nd. The band have been together for 10 years. In a statement issued on Wednesday, May the 11th, Little Angels told Mayhem that all five of us wish to have the freedom to move forward and pursue new interests within music, having decided that we've taken the band as far as it can go. The shock announcement comes hot on the heels of the band's Little of the Past Best of compilation, which marked the end of their association with Polydor Records. A final farewell single is being recorded this week. No further details are available at present. The band who refused to comment on the split until they had firm plans for the future to announce were in surprisingly high spirits when they spoke to Kerrang just last month. They spoke about their optimism for landing a place on the Donington Festival bill and were enthusiastic about little of the past. However, their disappointment at never having had a real crack at America was quite obvious. Polydor have had a number one album and 10 top 40 singles out of us, said bassist Mark Plunkett, but they're not prepared to develop us around the world and we've never allowed anyone to hold us back. Musically or otherwise. In Kerrang's New Year edition, the band's resolution for 94 was a cryptic to not be little anymore. Singer Toby Jepsen told Mayhem in March that he was pleased when the band were referred to as Just the Angels. He was clearly feeling the strain of public media perception. Largely, that the Little Angels were a soft rock outfit for teenagers. The split wasn't that much of a shock to me, the band's manager Kevin Nixon told Kerrang this week. I think the lads feel they've outgrown the band and that there is so much more for them to do. Little Angels was maybe a little restrictive for their ambitions. Whitesnake release a greatest hits package through EMI on July the 4th. Mayhem can reveal that ex-rat six-stringer Warren DeMartini Martini, is the hot favourite to become the new lead guitarist with a reformed supergroup. DeMartini has long been linked with the position and sources close to the band now indicate that he is the replacement for Steve Vai. Stop Press and the full lineup of this year's Reading Festival is expected to be announced next week. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Soundgarden, Therapy, Rollins Band and Terrorvision all accept to play on Sunday's Metal Night with one more band likely to complete the lineup. More news soon. Hull are set to release a second single from their acclaimed Live Through This LP later this year. There's also talk of the band coming over to the UK to fulfil touring commitments originally made prior to Nirvana singer Kurt Cobain's death. Meanwhile, all charges against Hull singer Courtney Love relating to her arrest in April have been dropped. Caius have had the release of their third album Sky Valley put back until June 27th. And finally, Kerrang would like to congratulate Bruce Dickinson and wife Paddy who celebrated the arrival of a baby daughter, Kia, last week. And speaking of Bruce Dickinson, balls to Brucey bonus. Bruce Dickinson will not be playing any live dates this summer contrary to a number of incredible rumours which have emerged this week. Flyers advertising the involvement of both Dickinson and Iron Maiden in mystery gigs at Milton Keynes and Donington have been slammed by Bruce's management company Sanctuary, who this week told Kerrang that the stories were complete bollocks. Dickinson will be in the States from mid-June until August the 1st and is set to announce his new touring band and a series of live dates on, to, on his return. We want to make it absolutely clear that there will be no dates until the autumn, said an official Sanctuary spokesman. Please do not allow yourselves to be conned into wasting your time or money when the dates are set. They will be properly announced. Paradise Lost are putting the finishing touches to their debut retail video. Entitled Harmony Breaks, it will feature a combination of live footage, interview material and promo clips and is tentatively due a June release through Video for Nations. Record releases and the Manic Street Preachers release a new single on May the 30th. The double A sides are PCP and Faster. 
brand new chunks of Buzz Pop, which are accompanied by another unreleased track, Sculpture of Man, and a live version of one of the Preacher's earlier songs, New Art Riot, recorded this January at London Brixton Academy. Pride and Glory, the new southern rock trio put together by former Ozzy Osbourne guitarist Zach Wilde, released their eponymous debut album through Geffen on May 23rd. Produced by Rick Parashar, um, it precedes their June 4th Dunnington Monsters of Rock appearance with a one-off date at London Camden Underworld on June the 4th. Alice Cooper, whose new album The Last Temptation is released through Epic in June, will be represented in lookalike form on ITV's Stars in Their Eyes on May 21st. Chris Pavlo, frontman with legendary 80s glam rockers Aunt May, will be performing as Alice for The Watching Millions and will also appear the same night with his band Aunt May's Masquerade at London Putney Fox and Hounds. In addition to this, Chris will be having lunch with The Real Alice on daytime TV in June. Tour news and Head Swim warm up for their Donington Festival appearance slot with a free gig at Onga Education Campus on May 21st. Other bands confirmed to appear are Play Dirty, Polaroid, U4 We Are and 2012. Further information is available by telephone in SBS Studios on 0277 365 605. L7 have confirmed a one-off date at the London Astoria 2. They play the Charing Cross Road venue on June 16th. Beastie Boys return to the UK this summer for their first date since 1992's tour with Rollins Band. They play the London Astoria on June 22nd. The band who have been added to the Bill of the Glastonbury Festival released their new album, Ill Communication, through Parlophone on May 23rd. And finally, Skin have lined up a PA at Preston Friargate Action Records on May 21st. It is the day of their Preston Mill gig and a short acoustic set at the store is on the cards. The band are set to arrive at 1pm. Coast to coast now and this week we are with Lisa Johnson in Los Angeles. When Lisa Johnson goes out she hangs with Aerosmith in their new club, then she checks out the schmoozers at Nine Inch Nails gigs and before bed there's time to take in Rage Against the Machine at benefit shows. For you. It all began with the grand opening festivities surrounding the House of Blues, a new hotspot on the Sunset Strip owned by an assortment of celebrities. Part owners Aerosmith rocked the house for a bevy of revelers inside including Dustin Hoffman, Depeche Mode Dave Garn and his GNR mate Gilby Clark. Scott Bio, remember Chachi from Happy Days, plus co-owner Dan Aykroyd. Aykroyd, half of the Blues Brothers, resurrected the infamous blues duo minus the late John Belushi, naturally, for a performance on a subsequent night. Aerosmith, meanwhile, played a full set to the lucky few thousand crammed inside. Fans were thrilled to hear mostly older numbers the band doesn't usually play these days. I Ain't Got You from Live Bootleg, Spaced, Same Old Song and Dance, and Train Kept a Rolling from Get Your Wings. A few days later, Nine Inch Nails headlined a string of sold-out shows at the Palace in Hollywood, capping the week off with an exclusive private party at a small disco nearby. The bash was well uh, attended by the likes of butthole surfers Gibby Haynes, Rage Against the Machine's Tom Morello, Corrosion of Conformity's Pepper Keenan, who attended all Nine Nails shows that week, White Zombie's Sean Uzel, and Smashing Pumpkin Billy Corgan. The Pumpkins were in town filming their new video for Rocket, the third single from Siamese Dream. Pumpkins fans should also look out for a home video currently in the works as, a, as well as a collection of B-sides, which is due for release on CD this summer. 
Just as you were rising from the previous night's carousing, it was time to throw on your favourite baseball hat backwards and head down to the benefit gig organised by Raging Against the Machine. It raised over $80,000 for Leonard Peltier, a Native American who has been serving time in jail accused with the murder of two FBI agents. Much like the cases involved with wrongful imprisonment in the film In the Name of the Father, Peltier uh, maintains his innocence. He has many supporters including Oliver Stone, Robert Redford and uh, 55 members of Congress and Radiant Machine joined in the fight for Peltier's clemency in fine form. Sorry folks, now to bed. Next week, Don K rocks the rotten apple with metals, movers and shakers. We now come to part three of the Black Metal Court Report. Black metal star Varg Vikanez, aka Count Grishnak, stands accused of the murder of rival Oyston Arsef, but incredibly, he was planning a worse crime at the time of his arrest. Vikanez and his fellow satanic terrorists were plotting to blow up a church during a packed Sunday mass. Tor Oyen files this shocking and exclusive court report. Varg Vikanez is charged with the murder of Oyston Arsef, the Norwegian black metal godfather who was found brutally stabbed to death in August of last year. Vikanez has confessed to the killing and his alleged accomplice, a young male own, uh, known only as Snorre, has given an eyewitness account. Vikanez now faces additional charges of arson following the torching of several churches in the region of his hometown Bergen. He's also accused of stealing dynamite with the intention of destroying another church. Vikanez and Snorre entered the dock on the first and second days of the trial. The third day introduced several new witnesses to the Arsef murder case. Day 3 17-year-old Ilsa was a girlfriend of Vikanez and then Arsef. In court, she wore all black with a heavy bullet belt and spoke in a clear voice. On August 6th, I got a call from Arsef. He was furious about a letter Vikanez had written. He had had enough of Vikanez's shit throwing and wanted to get rid of him. Arsef asked me for advice. Should he go vi kill Vikanez or should he collect enough evidence to get Vikanez convicted for several church fires? He had closely evaluated both options. If Vikanez uh, was to be killed, Arsef would travel to Bergen and electrocute him with an electro gun. Some of the evidence of arson was to be gotten from uh, Saida Andersson, a famous Swedish psychic. The fortune teller said she had seen several pieces of evidence which would convict Vikernes of up to four church fires, but she also said she could see Vikernes getting 12 years in jail. Upon hearing this, Arsef was scared stiff. He said Vikernes would never receive such a hard sentence for arson. To get 12 years, he had to be convicted of murder. Arsef contacted me two more, uh, twice more in the last days before he was murdered. He gave the impression of being in a hurry. It was very important for him to do something before something was done to him. In the last call around 30 hours before his death, he was more concrete. He said he was afraid of Vikernes. Either he would do something or Vikernes would. Another witness appearing on the third day was a 21-year-old male who had worked in Arsef's Oslo record store Helvete. He revealed details of the black metal community and its sinister inner circle. Arsef was known as the leader of these cults. His record label Death Like Silence was at the core of the black metal scene and his band Mayhem were highly influential. Bizarrely, Arsef was the second member of Mayhem to die. The band's original vocalist, Dead, committed suicide in 1991. The witness revealed Arsef was really a nice guy when one got to talk to him alone, but he played a part where being as evil as possible was the goal. Arsef took pictures of Dead after he had shot himself with Arsef's shotgun. I have seen a necklace made from splinters of dead skull. Human bones and skulls were stolen from graveyards to create jewellery. Day 4. The key witness for the prosecution of Varg Vikernes is another 21-year-old male from Bergen, whose identity remains undisclosed. This witness took the stand on the fourth day of the trial. He revealed, Around 24 hours before Vikernes and Snorre travelled to Oslo, they turned up at my flat in Bergen. 
Vikanez offered me 5,000 crowns, 500 pounds, to go to Oslo with him, but when he told me that the purpose, purpose was to kill Arsef, I immediately refused. I did, however, participate in the discussion on how Arsef was to be killed. Both Snorri and myself tried to stop Vikernes, saying how suspicious it would look if Vikernes was in Oslo on the night of the murder. I stayed in Vikernes' apartment so that his neighbours would think he was at home. I played music and wrote on the typewriter. The neighbours were used to these noises and would thereby testify that Vikernes was at home at the time of the murder. I didn't enjoy the stay, knowing they would go through with the plans. In the morning I went back to my own flat. Around 2pm Vikernes came by. Now it is done, he said. In the 10 days that followed before our arrest, we spent a lot of time together. We made sure our stories matched. None of us alone decided what was to be said. We did it together. This witness has cooperated fully with the Norwegian police and has revealed details of church fires as well as the murder. The witness will not be implicated in the murder, although he has been charged and convicted of theft of dynamite. Day 5. Oyston Arsef was a man of many personalities. Witnesses painted... Uh, varying portraits of Arsef during the fifth day in court. Arsef's 50-year-old father blamed the media for portraying his son as a Satanist. We who knew him well knew that Oyston had no religious beliefs. Varg Vikernes smirked as Arsef's father continued. We had a lot of contact with Oyston and continually discussed his business with him. When the church fires were linked with his shop, it became too much for us. We had several family meetings and put pressure on Oyston to make him see what the consequences were for his family, that he was seen as a leader in this environment. Reluctantly, he closed the shop uh, last April. The remainder of day five saw various friends and associates answering questions about Arsef. A different Arsef emerged. The deceased was described as a completely evil man, both in thought and action. He devised methods of killing people in fine detail. He also conceived methods of torture and held lengthy lectures on how the torture would affect the victims. Arsef craved power and respect and wanted to be obeyed as a king within the black metal community. However, other members of the inner circle felt he was not extreme enough, a man of little action. Vikernes was, of course, among the, the latter group. Day 6. Vikernes took the witness stand again on the sixth day. He was questioned about the church fires and the theft of dynamite. Vikernes entered the dock with his hair tied into pigtails and made these astonishing revelations. Cooperating with Nazi groups, we planned an armed attack on a church during Sunday Mass when it was packed with people. We, members of the inner circle, were to be dressed as soldiers. The attack was to end with the church being blown to bits with all the people in it. We'd already gotten the dynamite from a gravel pit in Bergen. At first I kept the explosives in my bedroom. After a while, I decided to move it to the basement. Vickernis denied suggestions that a specific church had been targeted for the attack, although police believe Nidalosdemon Church in Trondheim was top of the terrorists list. Vikernes added defiantly, I knew about the church fires before they happened but I will not say who participated in them, I had no active part in the torching. Vikernes then revealed that inner circle members had planned to burn a number of churches on the sixth day of a certain week, which was also the sixth week for the, of the sixth month in 1992. The three sixes were of course symbolic of the beast in the book of Revelations. The burning of many churches on this one night was meant to signify God's downfall. Although in the event only one church was destroyed, Fantoft in Bergen, Vikernes' hometown. It was marvellous when churches burned, Vikernes gloated. I applaud people who have the guts to burn churches. The prosecutor then asked Vikernes if he had burned any churches. The reply was surprising. No, I don't have the guts. Vikernes then launched into a startling warmongering rant. Norway was christened by the sword. Now we shall take the country back with flames and machine guns. Through church burning and black metal music, we will reawaken the Norwegians' feeling of belonging to Odin. I want to create a large following. 
burn all churches, throw all Christians out and take back what was ours. My church burning army is to consist of young people. They are more open-minded because they haven't been brainwashed yet. Fickerness was then questioned by his defence counsel who first voiced concern over the apparent arrogance of his client. Fickerness replied, I'm not more arrogant here than I am elsewhere. He added, Satan means opposition in Hebrew. It also means opposition towards Christianity. Therefore, we are sons of Satan. Fickerness then left the dock as the sixth day of the trial was concluded. Next week, more incredible revelations from the trial of Varg Vikernes. Witnesses speak of their fear following death threats from Vikernes' allies and a former girlfriend of Vikernes claims he sucked the blood from my veins like a vampire. The full shocking story next week, only in Kerrang. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Concerts now, and the first concert this week is Napalm Death, supported by Entombed, at the Marquee London on Saturday, May the 7th. This review is by Morat, and this concert gets a high voltage out of 5. A 4 out of 5. I hate to be the one to say it, because when all is said and done, Napalm Death are still a fine band. But tonight, there's a feeling in the air reminiscent of when Sepultura supported Sodom on this stage all those years ago. Everyone, and I mean everyone, is here to see the opening band. Entombed amble onto the stage through fog-thick smoke and are greeted by an almost rabid pack of fans. The place literally goes wild. Entombed could just stand there, doing nothing, and they'd still go down well. Instead, they deliver a set so ferocious that it could rival their heroes discharged back in their heyday. There's little room on stage as the constant flow of stage divers perfectly complements this awesome racket. Skulls crack together in mid-air, arms and legs flail wildly, and every now and again a fat bastard, no, I wasn't diving tonight, disappears beneath the surface, which is exactly how the music sounds. Entomb deliver out of hand with frightening power and the crowd almost drowns them out with the chorus of Jesus Christ, Lord of Flies, and the massive mid-song, Fuck. And Iron Master and Hollow Man are totally incredible. Indeed, the only thing that lets Entomb down this evening is that skin basher Nicky Anderson is frequently out of time, or appears to be trying to keep up with a blistering pace. But what the hell, it's the first night of the tour and the final blast of Left Hand Path, no fuss, no encore, is about as subtle as a King's Cross wino in the off-license on Gyro Day. Magnificent. Napalm Death were always going to have to give it hell to follow that, but for some bizarre reason the PA has turned down, giving them little chance even when they kick off with Suffer the Children and Mass Appeal Madness. Admittedly, I've lost my vantage point and can't see the stage at all for a few songs, but the stage diving slows to a trickle as the band seem to struggle to put across their usual beef. Shane Embry's brilliantly blunt style of almost punching the noise out of his bass appears to be more out of frustration than anything else, even the kill merely wounds. Maybe now that Napalm are no longer the most extreme band on the planet, they've lost some of their potency. Or maybe this just wasn't their best show. Whatever the biggest cheer comes for a uh, cover of the Dead Kennedys' Nazi Punks Fuck Off, and the overall show didn't have the same slap in the face thing as the first time I saw him supporting the Stupids all those years back. Or indeed, the same bite as any of their subsequent shows. The new album title never seemed so apt. This next review is for Brian Adams, live at Wembley Arena, London, on Monday, May the 2nd. This review is by Steve Beebe, and this review gets a electrocution out of 5. A 5 out of 5, if you can believe that. Actually, I can believe it. Um, I'll tell you what, a friend of mine who used to work in the music industry, she, she sent me a message one day. I got a text from her saying, Do you want to go and see Brian Adams play an acoustic set in a church in Piccadilly tonight? Obviously, I said yes. So off we went, went along, packed into this church. 
Brian Adams comes out on stage and the first four rows of pews, which were filled up with like Brian Adams super fans, all run up to the stage and they're all just sort of like trying to touch him and um, flailing wildly. We obviously stayed in our pews because, you know, it was Brian Adams. I tell you what, he put on an absolutely brilliant show. He played for about an hour or so. Um, Mel C was there, but they didn't play that song that they duetted on together, which was very unfortunate. But yeah, I can I can kind of understand why people love Brian Adams live. I mean, it's really not the kind of thing that you should be admitting, but he does knock out a good tune. Anyway, back to the review. This is the real thing, and it's magic. In an incredible two hours and 45 minutes, Brian Adams and his band demonstrate exactly why they don't need controlled explosions, dry ice, and plum-coloured hair to create hysteria amongst their audience. How much more genuine could this man be? Opening with heaven is a strange move, but any niggles are forgotten as Brian leads us on a breathtaking roller coaster through his career. Strung out by the more emotional material that he is equally renowned for, there are dizzying renditions of Kids Wanna Rock, House Arrest, One Night Love Affair, and a Titanic Touch the Hand. There's a show-stopping when the night comes and a stunning everything I do. Both played with a sincerity that causes the skin to tingle. It's 45 minutes before Brian even says good evening, and the party has only just begun. The band's repartee with its audience is second to none. Brian even invites one particular vocal fan up on stage in front of 9,000 people. Anton from Folkestone gets to sing the first verse and chorus to Summer of 69 with Brian and co playing along. He finally leaves the stage with a grin the size of a banana, shaking his head in disbelief. Sometime in the next century, Anton will be telling his grandchildren about tonight. The next song, There Will Never Be Another Tonight, seems wonderfully appropriate. For part of the set, the entire band adjourn to a small platform in the centre of the arena. Spontaneity rules the occasion and makes no mistake. This band just want to go on playing until morning. Guitarist Keith Scott not only stage dives three times, but specialises in dramatic lead breaks. Eventually chaos erupts, the crowd overtake the small platform and the band are chased back to the main stage. Talent, integrity and more classic songs than I have words for. This man's consistency of achievement proves the strong will always survive. One thing I forgot to mention about that gig um, that I saw <laughs> in the uh, in the in the church in Piccadilly was after playing Summer of '69, this woman behind me just screeched the absolute loudest in my ear. I, I won't I won't do the impression, but she she said she just screamed out, "You rock, Brian!" and I, I can still hear it like bouncing around my head. It was painful, so so painful. And Brian Adams being told that he rocked, I, I guess. I guess that's what he wanted to hear. You rock, Brian. Brian, you rock. Guess what, Brian? You rock. This next review is uh, for a band called Green Day. You might have heard of them. Supported by Pope at the Highbury Garage, London, on Saturday the 30th of April. This review is by Paul Rees, and this gets a static out of five, which is a three out of five. Looking like a brickie and sounding like a man with lung cancer trying to sing, the unmistakable Frankie Stubbs is back with a new band, Pope. And whatever brought Leatherface to its knees, it hasn't damaged Stubbs' hobnail passion. Pope's theme for a set littered with angry riffs and bittersweet melodies. The trio are almost flattened by a transistor PA, but Stubbs' is beautifully worn bellow scraped through the mix. And in I'll Say No More, he's written the yet another gnarled and gnashing pop-punk gem to wave like a standard. If you've heard Dookie, in all its boneheaded glory, you'd expect Green Day to follow Pope like a tequila slammer, quick, fizzing and lethal, and you'd be sadly mistaken. Instead they motor into Welcome to Paradise, all drill riffs and sunburnt currencies, like they're going to tear your head off, 
only to spend the next hour pissing about smiling smugly. Billy Joe Armstrong breaks up his free called nuggets by mugging to an imaginary gallery. Mark Pritchard aimlessly plucks his bass and headbutts his mic during the gaps, while drummer Trey Cole is as anonymous as his name is ludicrous. The steady stream of stage divers slows to a trickle. By the end, even a blitzkrieg bop through FOD has failed to stifle a yawn. The album title means shit. Tonight, it was self-explanatory. This next review is for the Mick Ronson Memorial Concert. This took place at the Hammersmith Apollo London on Friday, April the 29th. The review is by Paul Rees, and this concert gets a short circuit out of five, which is a two out of five. Dear, oh dear. Mick Ronson died a year ago. He's best remembered tonight on two video screens, ripping out the white heat riff to David Blowey's classic, Gene Genie. He is not best remembered by the procession of artistic corpses who are wheeled out to pay lip service to his memory for the price of a £25 ticket. All for charity, of course. A roll call of people who turn up at the opening of a door if they got to play a couple of songs beforehand. The two Rogers, Taylor and Daughtry, Steve Harley, Bill Wyman and Lord Help Us, Rolf Harris and his wobble board. In fact, almost everyone who worked with, spoke to or knew of the late guitarist is here except for Bowie himself. And by the time ex-Radio 1 DJ whispering Bob Harris and a succession of old hacks have traded platitudes, a couple of bad pub rock bands and big audio dynamite have piled on the musical slop and Captain Sensible has been told to fuck off by one thoroughly dismayed punter, you're almost wishing you were in the same place as dear old Rono. The sorry mess is eventually pulled together by Joe Elliott, Phil Collin and Ronson's old partner Ian Hunter. The Def Leppard duo offer their respects with rooting tooting covers of Moon Inch Daydream and Suffragette City, while Hunter brings a lump to the throat for all the right reasons on the closing All The Young Dudes. In the end though, one listen to Ziggy Stardust will tell you more about Mick Ronson than any number of all-star, no-star meat markets. This next piece is called The Kurt Tragedy by Sebastian Bach, the lead singer of Skid Row. It's kind of like he's written a letter into Kerrang! and they've just published it, so it's probably a bit from communication, but I feel like they've given it its own page, to separate from everything else. It's quite, it's quite odd. Anyway, let me read this. The suicide of Kurt Cobain left millions of rock fans and musicians shocked, saddened and confused. Many fans and writers have tried to find some meaning in Kurt's death, but even Kurt's own suicide note left so many questions unanswered. Skid Row singer Sebastian Bach is one of rock and roll's biggest and most colourful characters. On the surface, Sebastian had little in common with Kurt, but Sebastian is a father of two boys and it is the sympathy for Kurt's daughter Frances Bean that has moved him to write the following message to Kerrang! readers. I find the comparisons between Kurt Cobain and John Lennon on MTV misleading to the young people in the world today who may not have heard Lennon's music. Both men were incredibly gifted songwriters but as inspirational figures the two could not be more distant. John Lennon sang of peace, starting over, going cold turkey and the world living as one. Kurt Cobain sang of apathy, lithium and just may have inspired a generation to think that suicide is the only way out. Lennon was taken from us leaving a body of work spanning almost four decades. Cobain took himself from us after four albums. When Nirvana came out such a short time ago, they were supposed to be a reaction against rock's traditional values. They talked about having morals, about yourself, your sexuality, politics and the world around you. Then why is it that Cobain decided that his fans were more worthy of his life than his own daughter? As I hold my two sons listening to Beautiful Boy by John Lennon, I feel heartbroken for Francis Bean. Suicide is the ultimate act of selfishness, megalomania, cowardice. 
John Lennon was a father and a man. Kurt Cobain killed himself before he had the chance to become either. Sebastian Bach, Skid Row, USA. I uh, am going to take umbrage with this letter. I have got no idea why Sebastian Bach decided to write this letter into Crane. It's, it's kind of incredibly, I don't know. It, it strikes me as being a bit silly. It's a bit, I, I don't really understand. I guess maybe MTV at the time was making comparisons between Kurt Cobain and John Lennon because they were, you know, they were taken from us, killed in their prime, you know, whatever you want to say. But like for him to call Kurt Cobain, like the, the act of suicide selfish, an act of megalomania and cowardice, I, I, I don't know. That doesn't really sit very well with me. He it's quite clear that he was a very, very unwell person. Uh, his mental health issues, his addictions, um, you know, they've been talked about so much. And I think, I, d I don't really understand why Sebastian Bach wrote this letter in. I, I kind of, this kind of annoyed me a little bit. It's, it, I, I don't know. I, again, I'm, I'm really lost for words a little bit about what the point of Kerrang putting this in here for, putting this in here for, <laughs> What Kerrang put this in the magazine for and why Sebastian Bach thought it was the right time to write it. Maybe he loves John Lennon and he didn't want John Lennon to be compared to Kurt Cobain. I mean, what a weird thing to do. Let's move on. We now move on to communication. Communication. If you've got something you want to get off your chest, do you want to win a Fabo Kerrang goodie? The letter of the week this week begins, Last night, I saw the best show I've seen for ages. In fact, it's a strong contender for being the best show I've ever witnessed. I am, of course, referring to Brian Adams playing at Wembley Arena. I wasn't a particularly huge fan of his, but I take that all back now. What can I say? Brian and the boys put on a fantastic show and kept the whole arena rocking for over three hours. Brian really knew how to get the crowd going, and we loved it. He involved the audience at every available opportunity and kept up a joking banter in between songs. The result? A wondrous time was had by band and audience alike. A big thanks to Brian and the boys from myself and anyone else who witnessed the show. And when you next play, I'll be first in the queue for a ticket. Amanda from Seven Oaks. Try and wear this big Kerrang tap then when you go. Editor. I feel I must write about Chris Watts' interview with Max Cavalera, issue 493. I've never had anything but respect for Max, and I think he is an inc uh, extremely responsible father. It's a shame that papers like The Sun would never print an interview with him, but of course it isn't sensational enough. Could they cope with the fact that someone they had criticised is actually a very intelligent and down-to-earth person, not to mention a caring husband and father? I read the coverage of Nicky Conroy's murder in both The Sun and The Guardian. The coverage in these two papers was very different and I can honestly say the coverage in The Sun made me feel sick. For years, papers like The Sun have been telling us how to think and how to act. It's quite frightening that The Sun sells around 4 million copies a day. How many of those 4 million readers believe that heavy metal was responsible for Nicky Conroy's death? The tabloid reading public are never going to understand that some of us feel the need to be different, to look different, to think our own thoughts and to listen to music they don't understand. They are offended by us, so they criticise us. They are scared of what they don't understand. Maybe they ought to learn a little about the people they attacked. Because um, you'd be hard pressed to find a better role model than Sepultura's Max Cavalera, Donna from Sheffield. On May 6th, 1994, another chapter in the history of rock music came to an end. I refer to David Lee Roths. Didn't it used to be Dave at his Newcastle concert? 
For £15 per ticket, we got the old fella looking like a university lecturer ambling across the stage with the odd kick. So it was no surprise when I saw several people making an early getaway. His music may never have been the strongest, but you are always guaranteed a good show with Dave. With David, it was not the case. From Michael Anthony's bass strap, Tynan Weir. Gagging for shagging. There are loads and loads of famous fit people that I could have nominated, such as Eddie Vedder, but here's someone that's much better. Yes, you, Paul Reeves of Kerrang. When I first saw you on MTV's Headbangers Ball, I couldn't breathe. I've never seen such talent, and I love the way you said doo-wop. That was just so cool. I also totally agreed with everything you said about television. A poster, please. AS from Manchester. I'm writing to apologise to the band Dig, who played an excellent set in Norwich while supporting the Rollins band. I'm not apologising for myself, but on behalf of the rest of the people in the audience who just sat there, motionless on the floor during Dig's set. There were only about 10 of us right at the front of the stage dancing. On the way out after the gig, the bass player from Dig thanked us for going to the front. He shouldn't need to have thanked us, everyone else should have been dancing too. The Rollins band were excellent too. Right from the start of their set, they were totally hard-hitting and, and intense. We were still at the front getting squashed from every direction, but it was worth it to see the Rollins Band. Thanks to Dig and the Rollins Band for the best night out I've had in ages. Nikki from Beckles. I've just been to see whatever at Trillions in Newcastle. They are one of the best bands I've seen for ages. The Wild Hearts will miss that drummer more than he'll miss them. Chris Cornell's final shirt from Phenom. Terrorvision recently played the Boardwalk in Manchester, which due to its club licence is unable to admit under-18s. Prior to the gig, the band bus was mobbed by over 30 kids who were under 18 but had been sold tickets by an outlet in the city centre or who were 18 but had no ID. The venue would not admit them for fear of being closed down, despite our best efforts and threats of pulling the show. Although it is no consolation to those fans, it may please them to know that due to the stir calls, the police have now agreed to admit under-18s to future gigs at the boardwalk, provided they are, that they are not served alcohol. I'd like Terrorvision's fans to know that the band don't forget about these kinds of incidents and to say that despite our frantic arguments with the venue, the boardwalk has now gone up in my estimation considerably for the way it has resolved this matter for future gigs. Al Rhodes, Terrorvision's manager. An ode to Ricky's hair. Oh Ricky Warwick, you've sent me to despair. Why the hell have you cut off your hair? First Jason Newstead and now Chris Cornell, and half of Bloody Pearl Jam as well. Some while ago I made this mistake, and ever since then I've had nothing to shake. You've ruined my day, I can do without shocks, like seeing you Kerrang, or Sean with no locks. Who next? Sepultura? Oh heaven forbid that they should go to a barber and do what you did. I know you'll still rock and I'll be there too, but now sad of face when I'm looking at you. Oh Ricky, Black Wednesday, oh day of despair, why in sod's name have you cut off your hair? From the resurrection mother from Hans. Ill communication. Next in Kerrang is a piece called Massive Noise Ejection. Sensors full on raging rap metal is the hottest new noise in the UK. Their thrashing first single, Eject, was a huge cult hit. Now their debut LP is in the national top 10. Jason Arnott tracks them down mid-tour to investigate strange tales of belly dancing, crusties and the power of metal. You'll have heard at least one of Sensor's uniquely heavy songs by now, so who exactly are Sensor and where have they come from? Sensor are Haltham Al-Sayed vocals, 
Kirsten vocals, Nick Michelson guitar, James bass, John drums, Andy DJ, Haggis keyboard samples. All hail from Wimbledon, although Hyphen comes uh, via Saudi Arabia. The band have been around in different forms since 1987. Founding member Nick's been playing since the age of 14. His dad bought him a guitar and he plugged into a load of Rush albums. Nick was later to get into hip-hop and techno before re-embracing the likes of Slayer, Rain and Blood is the only metal album I haven't got bored with, Metallica, Hetfield to Genius and Sepultura. An early incarnation of Sensor dabbled in psychedelic heavy metal. Their singer at that time fancied himself as the new Freddie Mercury and promptly got the boot. Enter Kirsten and Hyphen, who initially joined the band as their percussionist belly dancer. You know that bit at the start of Tales of the Unexpected, laughed drummer John Wickedly? We then started adding raps to the music, relates Nick, and we decided to cover She Watched Channel Zero by Public Enemy. That song changed people's lives of what hip-hop can be, and it meant a lot of, uh, to people like James and Hyphen. Living Colour and Fishbone were also big influences. Why have Centre taken so long to come to prominence? The answer is simple. For ages, they weren't very good. We knew uh, where we wanted to end up, begins Nick, but it took us a while before we could move in that direction. Basically, James and Kirsten hadn't played their instruments before they joined the band. We gave James just two weeks to learn and Kirsten was learning the ropes from day one. There was a lot of confidence building to be done, but gigs made it better and better. I used to be in a really bad band called Plastic Pig when I was 13, reveals John, who joined Centre two and a half years ago. We did ACDC covers, cult covers, the odd Brian Adams cover, and then I got into Hendrix and late 60s hard rock and psychedelic blues. Sensor went through an indie pop phase in the early days. Nick admits, and originally there were problems with seven people creating stuff, but we've introduced each other to different styles of music, so we're all pretty much on the same level now. The music press ignored so-called crusty-looking bands and festival-type bands for a long time. Stuff like Back to the Planet and Odric Tentacles. Krusty is as vague and useless a tag as Riot Girl. Nick, we grew up in that so-called crusty scene, so the first audiences we ever had were crusty audiences. They were positive and friendly, really open-minded, that's why we've been associated with that whole thing, but it has been a bit stupid. So when did the current sensor realise that what they were doing is a bit fucking special? Nick. We never actually reached that point, but we knew that that was where we wanted to be was a bit fucking special. What we wanted to do had never been done before and we really wanted to hear that. You don't tend to realise yourself if you're special. A few hundred people leaping around and giving you a really good buzz, now that's special. It's been a good 12 months since uh, buzz since the debut Eject single was unleashed early last year. I was a bit worried about doing Eject as a single reflex, Nick. We thought it might only sell a couple of thousand because it didn't seem that commercial. But it got to number one in the chart show chart and stayed in there for a year. Ironically, the fresh rapping Eject was still in the charts after the subsequent Karma single The Key dropped out. We never tried to rush things off as Nick in explanation of their, of their success or get those really big chart positions too early. We've been lucky with the way it's uh, built up. Make no mistake, Sensor loved their metal. Their latest fourth single is Age of Panic, remixed with a bloody great big riff over the top. Hell, even their bus driver Ned has impressive metal cred. He is reputedly the man who named Motorhead's classic live album No Sleep Till Hammersmith. Live, Sensor are more intense than 99% of straight rock bands and more entertaining. Tonight at the Northampton Roadmenders, when someone yells, get your tits out at Kirsten, Hyphen gets the wag up on stage and asks him to get his cock out. He doesn't. Sensor have also toured like bastards, doing three or four interviews a night and continually fielding questions about Rage Against the Machine. Says Hyphen, we've came to England quite heavily. It's just an irrational fear that if you disappear for more than two weeks, everyone will forget about you, he grimaces. We'd have to go back to playing the fucking George Roby again. 
The eight page pullout this week is an eight page pullout of Guns N' Roses and it's some posters. Lovely. These posters didn't make it onto my wall, unfortunately. I don't know what happened in 94, I'm sure I was still a big Guns N' Roses fan, so it's a bit confusing why they didn't make it on my wall. Anyway, there's a piece about uh, the new single, which is Since I Don't Have You, and uh, Jason Arnott speaks to a few fans in the street around Carnaby Street, where the Krang offices are. People aren't very happy with it, they don't really like the single, that's fair enough. The back of it there is a competition. It's a competition corner. Go for your guns. It's another great Guns N' Roses giveaway courtesy of Kerrang. Yush indeed. Here's your chance to get your hands on not one but two highly exclusive pieces of GNR swag, all for the price of a phone call. Each of our 10 lucky winners will receive the following killer prizes. A limited edition CD of the Gunners' new single, Since I Don't Have You, packaged in a special tin embossed with a GNR logo. Plus, one of a very limited number of Guns N' Roses promo radios decorated with the sleeve artwork from the album's latest album, The Spaghetti Incident. To stand a chance of winning these great Guns goodies, simply answer the following question correctly. GNR guitarist Gilby Clark was previously a member of which LA-based rock and roll act? Was it A. Kilford Frills, B. Kill City Dragons, or C. Killers? If you know the answer, call 0839-401-3388. Leave your answer, name and address. There's also another competition on the next page. Fighting with the Angels. This is the big one. Little Angels fans, the Big K has got one hell of a competition for you. This is your chance to win the personalised boxing robe worn here by Toby Jepson, frontman of the Little Angels. It's the very robe he wore on the cover of Kerrang! earlier this year. There's only one of these items in existence and it could be yours. What's more, Toby and the rest of the Angels will present this exclusive prize to the lucky competition winner in person backstage at the Albert Hall when the band play their farewell gig on July 7th. July 2nd, sorry. Stand a chance of winning this one in a million prize? Answer the following question. Little Angels' first UK hit, Radical Your Lover, was co-written by which US hard rock star? A, John Bon Jovi, B, Dan Reed, or C, Paul Stanley? If you know the answer, call 0839-401-339. Leave your answer, name, and address. Singles now, and in a fun twist, the new 45s this week are digested by Tony Wright, Mark Yates and Shutty of Terrorvision. The referee is Ray Zell. The first single uh, reviewed is Bruce Dickinson, Tears of a Clown. Yikes! A 6 minutes and 20 Brucey bonus second mystical imagery loaded epic from the ex-maiden Banshee. And verily, let us not forget the subtle reggae se segment. Tony, I'm speechless. Shutty, that was the worst six minutes of my life. What about the other 20 seconds? Mark, that was the reggae bit. Shutty, next. The next single is Morbid Angel, God of Emptiness on Earache. Typical grunt and growler from David Vincent and his Floridan death, death dealers. Sorry, not death metalers, death dealers. Mark, he's not a happy bunny, is he? Tony, when you hear the name Morbid Angel, it leads you into thinking it might be sort of doomy and all that, but it's more poppy, ain't it? Shutty, did I hear some doom wops in the background? No, I think they were backward spoo odds. Pearl Jam with a single dissident on Epic. Um, a bit tortured. Mark, thanks for making our minds up. Tony, they do what they do and they do it well. Shutty, I don't think it stands up. There's much better singles on the album. What are all these bleeding cliches? Sound good in a club and better tracks on the album? I don't know. The next single is Alice Cooper, Lost in America on Epic. 
Totally F-U-N, snotty rocker from the coop. Should have been single of the week. Curses. Tony. The words are good, aren't they? Shit hot, them. Shutty. I can't help thinking I've heard it before. Mark. You can't fault Alice. I used to like him. He says, eagerly claiming Claire Dells' discarded promo Alice Cooper t-shirt. Tony. The most uplifting experience I've had all day. Now that's a single, you see. Mark. That is definitely a single. Shutty. That is not an album. That is a single. The next single is Sepultura Slave New World on Roadrunner. Nothing instantly recognisable as an actual song, but beautiful in clarity and brutality. Shutty. Great single. Mm. It sound great in a club or even your bedroom. Tony. You could have a club in your bedroom. Mark. Heavy as fuck. Thumbs up. No. Fists up for Sepultura. Single of the week this week is by a band called Cracker and the single is called Low. Would you Adam and Bleeding Eve it? First single we play and this cool groover ultimately trashes prime contenders like Alice Cooper, Pearl Jam and Sepultura. Cracker were formed in 1990 by David Lowry, the musical linchpin of the disbanded camper van Beethoven, says the press bump. Now you know as much as we. Mark. Don't think it would be radio friendly at least. I wouldn't presume so as he just said stoned in it. Tony. He might have actually meant stoned with stones because he's a Jehovah. Shutty. Anyway, much worse drug-related stuff gets on the radio. I thought it was a really good song. Mark. I liked it so much I might buy the company. I, a cracker from Cracker. Next up in this wonderful issue of Kerrang! this week, Death Warmed Up, this week's cover stars, it's Megadeth. There's a new vibe about Megadeth in 1994. They're happy, mellow, positive. They actually like each other, god damn it. What the hell's gotten into them? And why has main man Dave Mustaine quit being a dictator? In a Kerrang! world exclusive, Stefan Shirazi hangs out with a band in their Arizona studio as they prepare to record their crucial sixth album. Phoenix, Arizona it is nearing 7pm and a dusk sunset is about to slip away for the night. As Ross Halfin's camera snaps, there is a curious if not altogether odd quality to the photos taking place. The lights are there, the gear is working, so... So Megadeth are standing before the lens and smiling. No, correction, they're laughing. Laughing? This lot? Happy to be with each other? Seems that way. When Halfin tells them to get closer, they do so without a grimace, without flinching. Trust me, this would not have happened in May 1993. I'm here for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, Megadeth have started work on their sixth studio album, working title Euthanasia. They've started work in a studio they had built with producer Max Norman, and I'm here to investigate what's happened to Megadeth since February 1993, when leader Dave Mustaine suspended band operations due to illness. In this time of crisis, Megadeth haven't just kept going, they've actually drawn even closer together. I'm always at my sharpest first thing in the morning, announces Mustaine while sipping grapefruit juice. It's 8.45am. Despite having worked until 2am and risen at such an early hour, Mustaine doesn't miss a beat. Firstly, how does he explain the band's new attitude? Once miserable, Megadeth are now relaxed and happy. They look like a real band. Obviously, job security played a big part in the bond that's been created recently, he explains. That came by increasing the percentages, the dollars divided by the band and simple creative and artistic freedom. Recognition goes a whole lot further than five cents on the dollar. Mustaine seems to have finally recognised the dictatorial streak within him that has on occasion threatened to ruin Megadeth. When did it finally click that Mustaine had to re uh, release and let go so that Megadeth could move forward? I think 99 Ways to Die, the band's contribution to the Beavis and Butthead album, was where a lot of things changed. 
Angry Again from the Last Action Hero soundtrack was a big improvement and 99 Ways was proof that things were on an upswing as far as the mechanics of the band function. If things get any better right now, I'm gonna explode like Mr. Creosote in The Meaning of Life. But then I think, shit, I've worked my ass off. I've toured in the most miserable conditions, been with people who were un undesirable, had horrible run-ins with drug addiction, alcoholism, band problems, personality problems, conflicts of interest. All that stuff is conditioning me to appreciate just how good things are right now. If I hadn't gone through that stuff, things wouldn't seem as magnificent as they are now. Emotionally, it's been the most rewarding because now I look at the guys in the group and I actually feel something for them. Before, I used to feel threatened. Really? You used to feel threatened by them? It always seemed like it was the other way around. Well, I play hard, and because I play hard, some people think I don't like them, which isn't always the case. And I also realised that it wasn't just my ship, that each of us had an oar, and if only one of us is paddling, then we go round in a circle. If all four of us were there, uh, the same, then three of us would be unnecessary. Would you accept that at one point Megadeth was like a boot camp with Dave Mustaine as a drill instructor? It always seemed so oppressively intense to be in the band. But look at where we are right now. The calibre of respect that we draw from our peers and the record industry, he reasoned. Musically and lyrically, we have no boundaries. We work at a level of quality that few match and most fear. I guess a lot of the decisions I've made in the past have been very self-serving, but they've always been very accurate for the long-term effect. I think the guys thought I would do that to just serve myself and be a jerk when I was protecting us all. Now there's certain employment practices we use, there's certain songwriting methods we use, there's certain spiritual values we have. We all get along a lot better. So do you think they have the courage to come up and call you an arsehole if they think you're being one? I don't think they'd say it like that, but we'd talk, they'd bring it up. I think overall I've become uh, very confrontable. The next Megadeth record, Euthanasia, whatever, will be more of a group effort, although Mustaine is still responsible for a lot of the songs written. These guys now write their own parts, he explains. The song is written in a certain fashion, but each part that the player plays is their own signature piece, their own contribution. The piece that they feel the most comfortable playing within that particular song. Did Mustaine ever feel in the last two years that we, he had lost an edge to his writing because he wasn't getting high anymore? Does he still have to try and find some sort of tension to write songs? First of all, no. I never felt I'd lost an edge because I wasn't getting loaded anymore. And I don't have to find anything, it's really very simple, I'm really lucky. I can pick up a guitar and people want to listen to what I play. That is a gift. And I know I'm really good at what I do. It's really important to like what you do and know you're good at it. When did this level of self-esteem develop within you? Your lack of self-appreciation has been well documented. It was when we went out with Metallica last year that I recognised that. Every single one of the fans there to see them saw us too. And there wasn't a great difference between the two bands. One has been working a little longer. We both have the same kind of energy and we both have the same love of our audiences. But there has been some personal demons. I had to deal with losing my job and not being able to immediately get up, dust myself off and act like it didn't happen. I couldn't act like it didn't happen because it did and it was really concerned by us. Once we did the Metallica tour, the circle of events was complete. How did Mustaine deny his feelings after the Metallica split? I was in denial for probably two weeks after the event, but I was bitter for about 11 years, but now that circle is closed. The best improvement in my life was moving out here. He says of his move from Los Angeles to Phoenix last year, a move which has of course led to Megadeth making their album in Arizona. I don't think the rest of the band would want to move out here if it wasn't an improvement environmentally. I live here, bassist Dave Ellison lives here, Nick Menza guitar is also looking at house as we speak. 
What this environment has done for me is it's taken a certain weight off my neck. In LA, it always seems you have to act right, look right, and talk right. In LA, we're big fish in a big pond. Out here, we're big fish in a small pond. People treat us differently out here. We're human beings. In LA, it wasn't like that because we weren't some big Oscar winners. Dave Mustaine has seemingly been on a lifelong quest for respect from all walks of life. As a human being, as an artist, why is it so important to get respect from people you don't know? Well, I don't know if Quest is right. Maybe you're reading into what I said a little more than it maybe deserves because I really don't give a fuck what people think of me. I know that now my life is simpler. It isn't as motivated by money anymore. It's not like in LA where two Mercedes pull up at a stop sign and the one with the higher model number goes first. That whole attitude is why I moved from LA. It was a wonderful place, but I needed somewhere more suited for me, somewhere a little more low key. Here you tend to see people as they really are. And then when you go to LA, New York, London, you see the people that are the sharks in the pool. You see what they're all about. Until you're really around people, you'll uh, think that all the go-getters, the I'll fuck you before you fuck me people are normal. You forget what normal people are like. That's when you see normal people on the street, you think, what a bunch of simpletons. But then you try to realize that it's the creeps who try to crawl up your ass who are the exception to the rule. I'd rather associate with normal everyday people. People like our fans who work every day are proud of who they are and have dignity. Instead of dealing people uh, with people who are caught up in being just the right colour or just the right way. Mustaine accepts that his former fast lane friends were kept due to his own dreadful insecurities. The professional ass killers, kissers will tell you what you want to hear and then you turn around and talk. they talk about you behind your back. They don't have any loyalty or devotion. It's all get what you can, when you can, while you can. I respect people who are true to themselves. That's one of the things that bugs me the most about the music industry. You see bands who go from bangles hanging off their clothes to the big tattoo scene and flannel. The people who change their whole music and outlook to catch a wave. When did you realise that music industry folk weren't the people who were going to help you or the band? When we did the Aerosmith tour, that was a disappointment for us. In what sense? The people we looked up to weren't the people we perceived them to be. It's like going to see the Wizard of Oz. You think the Great Oz is this big powerful man and it's really this little wimp behind the curtain. We got treated really poorly on that tour. Megadeth were booted off the Aerosmith tour after just two weeks. Mustaine frequently slammed the Smiths from the stage. He's got no regrets on that score. Aerosmith were a cool band, but I wouldn't tour with them again. People said it'd be a great package because we're both sober bands, but you've got to look at the dynamics of the people. You put two people in a room who are totally different and they'll obviously either get on or they won't. One of the things that bugged me the most was when I was being introduced to Steven Tyler's wife. And he said, this is Dave. He is Megadeth. I said, no, I'm not. And he goes, yeah, you are. Just like I'm Aerosmith. I just went, excuse me. I figured, this guy's an asshole. And that was only on the first night. Mustaine is still bitter over the Aerosmith experience, but overall leaving LA seems to have taken the edge off his more hostile instincts. It's left him and Megadeth with a clear mental space in which to make the new album, due incidentally in October. Once again we can go back to the Metallica tour, Mustaine says. We went on tour with the boys and there didn't seem to be competition between the bands. There's no one else like either of us in our own right, so there's no competition. That's when I finally realised, why am I trying to be like them? Why am I concerned about how many records they sell? We've been doing this for 10 years and it's been a steady ebbing and flowing for us to get to where we are. It's part of being a dragon, he ponders. One of the wisest creatures ever created. It's a serpent, a reptile, a myth, a legend. Mustaine still finds it practically impossible to trust people. Wouldn't it be easier to let go, to trust certain people, maybe relax a little bit? No, absolutely not. Because man, as we know him, is an un unpredictable animal. 
You can't trust them, they're evil and they sin. Everyone says that the world is a bad place with some good people. I say the world is a good place with lots of bad people. Fortunately, I've run into some people like that. I have a very small network of people who, if they needed my help, I'd be there. A lot of the people who I come into contact with are starstruck or want something. You see, in my life, the people I come into contact with are like signposts on a freeway. Signposts will tell you how many miles it is to the next place. So some of those signposts have been helpful. Others have just been measurements. Every so often I bump into someone who has some information for me on my journey. I'm always searching for knowledge and it's helped me come to decisions about who I want to be with and who I don't want to be with. Dave Mustaine's train keeps a rolling. The journey is obviously not over. My journey's become a lot smoother. The whole drug thing was like, God, how am I ever going to get loaded again? It was a reality check that reminded me I wasn't missing anything. You have to remember why you quit and then when you're starting back up, you forget why. That's when you've done it, you remember, oh, this is why I quit. It's not an issue today because the music is so much more powerful for me. This music is the strongest drug. Megadeth are currently working on a whole array of new songs. No one's too keen to start discussing them all, but Mustaine is happy to discuss the concept behind the album's working title. Dr. Jack Kevorkian is an Illinois doctor who has been tried for assisting terminally ill patients in their suicide wishes. They were calling him a mercy killer, says Mustaine. The track Euthanasia says, We are the damned of all the world, the wounded of the wars with sadness in their hearts. We've been hung out to dry. You never loved us. Anyway, now we've made up our minds, tried to run our lives, we run to euthanasia. It's all about the fact that it's your life. And like any animal, when you're backed into a corner, you lash out. And if you're in a life and death battle, which is becoming futile because you're not going to win, it's much easier to choose your own way out. Basically, the album deals with common everyday life and how to cope with it. I'm not an enlightened master. I'm really striving to make a difference. I'm talking more about my life and how it's improved. For people who have similarities with me, who read into the story, the solutions are very generic. A lot of my problems are very common things that we deal with. Peer pressure, being accepted, wanting to fit in, wanting to be loved, and it all starts with yourself. Dave Mustaine is by no means near the end of his learning travels, a fact he knows all too well. Few have really been to hell and back, but he has twice. It means there will always be work in progress with a Mustaine mind. But finally he's made some serious headway in the right direction, and Dave Mustaine has realised that Megadeth, this Megadeth, is too good to lose. Which brings us back around to four people laughing and smiling in front of a camera lens somewhere in Phoenix, Arizona. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. We now come to records, albums, LPs, whatever you want to call them. Karen calls it records with a K and a Z. The first record reviewed this week is the album Pride and Glory by the band Pride and Glory. This review is by Dana Darzin and this album gets 4Ks. Killer. Oh yeah, the Kerrang ratings, I haven't said these for ages. 1Ks crap, 2Ks crusty, 3Ks competent, 4Ks killer, 5Ks classic. This gets killer. What happens to guitar heroes in this age of guitar anti-heroes? And what happens to all those members of dead pop metal bands? Their future actually doesn't have to be bleak. While most of the mid-80s wave is hanging out at LA's Rainbow Bar and pretending they're still rock stars, Ozzy Osbourne guitarist Zach Wilde and White Lion bassist James Lomenzo, along with drummer Brian Tishy, have come up with, pause for drumroll and surprise applause, a credible and cool southern rock album. Sporting a thick, dark, muddy roadside at midnight vibe, Pride and Glory has both an authentic sound and a real edge. Wilde turns out to have an expressive, gravelly, wailing voice that's perfectly suited for Crimea Rivers, Lifting twang. 
The inevitable blistering guitar solos work within the context of songs without ever seeming indulgent amid, for instance, the hard-edged percussion and gospel melody of Shine On. Hate your guts. I wish that you were dead. I'd dig the hole myself, but I'd rather run you over with my truck instead. Features an infectious Nashville vibe that could even make it a novelty country hit. The spirit of Wild's other gig makes an appearance on Harvester of Pain, which fans will be delighted to hear features that unmistakable funker funker squeal guitar intro so beloved by Ozzy. Other subtle influences intruded from their studio environment too. Pride and Glory was recorded in Seattle and produced by Rick Parashar, Temple of the Dog fame. Aptly, a deep, slow and low Soundgarden vibe appears during The Chosen One. Imagine Soundgarden go to Alabama and you're more than halfway there. The next review is by a band called Lagwagon with their album Trashed on Fat Records. This album gets 1k, which is crap, and is reviewed by Meanie. What a fucking hodgepodge. First track Island of Shame sets alarm bells ringing. Lagwagon have caught bad religionitis, a contagious condition thought to affect as much as 50% of US West Coast punk bands. The tragedy doesn't end here. The next stylistic misdemeanor involves excessive use of chord changes and stop starts in the manner of Victim's Family and Mind Over 4, where the aforementioned pull it off with technical mastery and natural grace. With these fellas, it's just all wrong. Just as bad as their attempts to play cute, all style, all manner of cringeworthy riffs, all smacking of plagiarism. Lagwagon bring to mind half the underground Californian bands of the last decade, but because they're not really being themselves, they sound bogus soulless and trite i am going to disagree with that review 100 percent because i think that album trash by lagwagon is actually pretty decent and it's got some really good songs on it the next review is an album called canine testicles by a band called come to bedlam this review is by paul travers this album is on beer monster breweries records and this review gives it 1k out of five 1k being crap this record might be called canine testicles but the dog's bollocks this is not remove the word dog and you'd be right the mac lads were great for 10 minutes the bad men perhaps for longer this naturally is puerile sexist misogynistic shit this might be forgivable if the songs were funny but for fuck's sake carla lane writes better comedy saxon write better heavy metal there's a chorus that goes, shit, shave, shower, shampoo, ooh, log cabin. And that's one of the better ones. The single one redeeming factor is the classic title, Chip Shop Metal Bitch. But even that doesn't beat Sumo Rabbit and his inescapable trap of doom. On reflection, keep the dog in there because that's what this is of an album. The next review is for the album Diary on Sub Pop Records by the band Sunny Day Real Estate. This review is by Golden Goldstein and this gets 4Ks out of 5. Emo Cot is the operative word here. Songs moving in great emotional dips and eddies. These latest Seattle Wonder Kids aren't exactly timid about wearing their hearts on their sleeves. It will definitely increase their teen magazine potential. Sensitive guy points aside, Sunny Day Real Estate make up a Seattle hardcore supergroup, culling members from Christ on a Crutch, Resolution and Brotherhood, with the emphasis shifted off the aggro and onto tense Beatles-esque harmonies and splintered guitar chords that explode into full-force gales like in circles. There's no classic rock manoeuvring. The melodies are practically forged in a square off between Pearl Jam and Fugazi. The guitars have been grittier, the volume louder, the faces prettier. 
But where Diary stands miles above anything out of Seattle in recent memory is his knack for never having to raise the volume. Grendel is at once forceful, uh, lilting and eerie. Courtesy of Daniel Horner's plaintive wail, they're outsiders, too optimistic for grunge and doom, a stark, blinding ray of sunshine. Chart Attack and the number one album this week is Skin by Skin. That goes from number 11 to number one. What a jump. I reckon that was them being on top of the pops. Number one on the indie metal chart is Stacked Up by Sensor and the number one single this week is Inside by Stiltskin. The reader's chart this week is Clifford Johnson from Newcastle. Clifford's uh, chart begins number one, Dr. Stein Halloween, two Paranoid Sabbath, three Kill the King Rainbow, four Crazy Train Ozzy Osbourne, five Hammer to Fall Queen, six Out on Bail Legs Diamond, seven Another Day Dio, eight Highway Star Deep Purple, nine Work Itself Out Rose Tattoo and ten Rocker ACDC. The star tracks this week is Therapy's Andy Cairns revealing the sounds great in his death deck. Number one, Jailbreak Thin Lizzy. Number two, The Living End Huskadoo. Three, Far Beyond Driven Pantera. Four, Bootleg CD by Judas Priest. And five, Anything by Bob Marley. And that concludes this week's episode of The Pod. Next week, Pantera revving up for Donington. Exclusive, Megadeth, the real Dave Mustaine by his bandmates. Motley Crue, Secret Rehearsals, Special Photo Expose. Black Metal Murder, Count Grishnak is sentenced. Bruce Dickinson, win invites to Brucey's birthday booze up. Plus, Nine Inch Nails, Skin, Marillion, Faith No More, Sepultura, and David Lee Roth. Wow, <laughs> that is a packed episode next week. Thank you as always for listening. Uh, I really appreciate it. And if you would like to leave us a review on Apple Music, finger me Bob, then you can. No worries if not. I realised that this episode is actually uh, a bit longer than I anticipated this week. I usually try and keep them under an hour. Just I think that's about an optimum time for a podcast. But like last week, there was so much to read. So, you know, I'd rather I'd rather read the stuff out that's good and go over than, uh, you know, skip. skip. I, I have to skip stuff anyway. I, I think I said this last week. It's just, it's just difficult knowing what to skip and what to keep. So anyone out there, if you've got any feedback for us, if there's stuff that you want me to keep uh, in there's what stuff you want me to get rid of (laughs) whatever you fancy really it's always nice to hear from listeners um we'll be back next wednesday Uh, i hope you all have a good week good weekend whatever you end up doing and uh yeah we'll talk to you soon all right thanks so much for listening cheers bye bye